right, hello, internet friends, and welcome to Love Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Boel. And I'm Alex Ruiz. And as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, you have your first snow day today. I do. I do indeed. It was a winter wonderland, kind of. I mean, it was three inches of a winter wonderland i was gonna say you just basically like got in your car and drove to your office and that was your experience like the office for your apartment complex to pick up some mail and i think that was your experience of it i had to brush snow off of my windshield and scrape the hard parts off for the first time in my adult life that is so precious to me like it's a very novel thing especially since i grew up in colorado and so i wasn't like clueless i just hadn't had to do it since i started driving cars no i get that i get that for those of you listening um you know we're recording this on january the 3rd here in Asheville, we got like three inches of snow last night it's funny because some of the forecasts were like it might be 10 inches and no like, it didn't even stick to the roads. Everything was fine. I drove to Andy's place without a single shred of issue. Um, I didn't have to dig my cars out at all. I just dusted them off. So this is a very, like, light snowfall. But I'm glad that your first snowfall here was light. Yeah. I'm not going to front. When I moved to Asheville, I had come from Jersey. And Jersey winters are not like Midwestern winters or anything. But I did have more than my fair share of days where, you know... You couldn't drive because there was too much fucking slush on the asphalt and you, you you know you did have legitimately like you could get a foot and it wasn't the and, and a foot was a lot and rare but it could happen and it was not so terribly unusual you will have a fairly mild winter here but i am glad that you got enough that like please please tell me before the day is over before the snow melts you're gonna throw a snowball at something like for the love of god for you, I will throw a snowball at something. I, I will go out and I will make merry and, and frolic in the ice. I was a piece of shit this morning. I walked Nico. I made a snowball. I did not throw the snowball at him, but as we were walking, I did kind of drop it on his back. <laughs> and granted, he was wearing a little sweater poncho because we baby him, but um, he didn't even notice the damn thing. So I don't feel too bad, but it was funny to me. Good, good on you. That's all I can say to that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, just staring out the window, you know, there's a there, there's a, a good dusting. That's the word for it. All the branches are white, and that is just like the only other times in my adult life I've been around snow is on my honeymoon, which was in the middle of December, and like. I think one other time where I was traveling somewhere cold and mountainous. So, like, to be able to look outside my home and see snow does hit differently. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, and it's nice. Now, the worst thing about the storm, honestly, was uh, the the wind of the storm uh, had a tree knock down a power line. And so we lost power in the middle of the night for a few moments. But other than that. I mean... You also found a bird last night. Yeah. Yeah, listeners, we were going to bed and there was just a straight up fucking finch in my room that we didn't notice until in the dark, my wife turns our like overhead fan on and something starts fluttering and hitting the walls. <laughs> and so that was a goddamn terrifying 
five seconds as I'm like rushing to turn on the light and then look around and see, okay, what the, did a fucking bat get in here? Is it the world's largest cockroach? Is, is this how I die? Oh, oh, it's a tiny little bird. How the hell did a tiny little bird get in here? I mean, I say this with full understanding that I am the vegetarian of the two of us, but I'm surprised you didn't like catch it and try to feed it to your snake. <laughs> Considering Gomez eats live, um, I was not going to even entertain the notion of trying to hold a bird by its feet out in front of him. Yeah, it seems like a good way to get, like, pecked or something. I, I have watched you feed your snake, and I have to say it, it it's an interesting experience. Sure. Um, you wear gloves because, you know, you've got live mice or live rats and they do not want to be eaten. No, they're, I, I don't fault them for their survival instinct, but I also don't want them biting me, so. Yeah, and it's just, you know, it's, I, I do not know what to honestly say about it because I sit here and I go, well, you know, Gomez is a predator. It, mm. I, I, I feed my dog meat. Because that's what he needs. Like, by the way, if you, uh, I know I've said this on the podcast in the past, but if you were one of those people who like keep a cat and you try to use like vegan cat food, fuck you. That is the wrong thing to do. You need to feed your cat meat. It will not be healthy otherwise, except that you have a carnivore in your home for the love of God. Yeah, humans are about the only animal I know of that can make that choice. I mean, I, I understand, you know, other primates and... and you, you get omnivorous animals. You like get most, other omnivorous animals. Most but. primates are omnivorous. They do eat, like, depending on your primate, they'll eat anything from... Okay, chimpanzees will eat mostly fruit. Um, probably 80 to 90% of their diet is fruit, but then they will also eat insects and small reptiles and mammals yeah. that they catch. Like, that is just, ve- that is very, very normal for them. We, uh, as primates, are technically omnivorous, which is why when you see the shit about, like, the Facebook CEOs who try to eat an all-meat diet, those people are stupid. Same time, I know of fruitarians who eat an, a diet consisting entirely of fruits and vegetables. Also, probably not the best idea. Well, right, and that that more gets into it because, like other other animals, other primates, it's not so much a conscious choice of consumption. It's a what's available. Yeah, this is what's available to me. If there were a, a bunch of if if steaks grew on trees and were somehow still meat, chimpanzees would eat steak with no compunction about that. Sure. As far as the bird goes. I was just glad that I, like, didn't have to actively grab the damn thing. Basically, I opened a window, grabbed a curtain rod and a shirt, and just kind of tried to, like, poke the bird. And every time I poked, it would fly into a different corner of my room. And I was just like, come on, dude, just go out the goddamn window until it finally did. Mm. Did you fall asleep after that? Eventually. (laughs) (laughs) So Mariah had been, like asleep on the couch for a good half hour and so you know kind of like was ready to just pass out in the bed and we both got a little adrenaline spike from an animal we weren't expecting in the back of our house to be in the back of our house 
So we stayed up a little bit after that. Yeah, yeah, you know what? That 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 makes sense. Like you're just sitting there listening for the sounds of the nest. Well, yeah, just hearing something else, and like now for the next couple of days, every time I open my bathroom door, it's going to be like, okay, am I going to be disturbing something? Mm. Welcome to love hate relationship, everybody. Um. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, as typical of any of our episodes, we spend a little bit of time at the top doing a little bit of a douchebag buffer. We tell you some stories or whatever's on our minds to hopefully get shitty people to stop listening to our show. Uh, but you are not shitty and you have stayed. So you get to hear the other three segments, which include one thing that one of us loves, another thing that one of us hates, and then a relationship question from either you or from the internet. And today, Andy, I have the love. That's damn right. And I'm... So I always like to start these with a question that I ask you, and I, I'm going to be upfront. I fully expect that the name Tim Pierce means absolutely nothing to you. So instead, I'm going to ask something related but different. Yeah. Knowing however much you do about studio production of music, how do you imagine it works when an artist like, for an example, let's just say Adele has a song being recorded. I pick Adele because you know that she's not going to be like Billie Eilish, who probably does most of her music on like a MacBook in a home studio. Sure. So an artist like Adele has a song being recorded. How do you think the different parts are played out or put together? What's a day in that studio like from what you understand? And that's such a great question that I appreciate because despite having an extensive background in video production, I have next to no background in audio production and mm -hmm. they are different worlds with very little bit of overlap and so i've never gotten a chance to be in a real actual music studio just seeing it in you know tv and movies and stuff so with you know adele specifically i imagine it is the kind of standard scenario of you have the artist in the booth you have the engineer manning the board you have various producers entourage posse what have you all kind of trying to provide more moral support than technical support but maybe a little bit of technical support um, and i do know it is my understanding that each component of a song is recorded separately which always used to like trip me out as a kid because I could only hear the song as a completed whole. And so trying to only picture the guitar line or the drum part was always something that like tripped me up. And so you have a day, you have like four hours with Adele and then Adele goes home and then you turn to the rest of the band and it's like, okay guys, now we know what we're doing and you're not the name on the, on the front of the cereal box. So let's get through this shit. You do the drums, you do the bass, you do the, the guitar you each get like an hour. Let's get this shit. You know, you are not terribly far off. However, very interestingly, you did get the order a little bit backwards. Okay. Normally, if you're, and this is all in a typical case, you, these can happen in various orders, um, just depending on the individual song and artist. But the typical thing is you'll have the song written. And in a case like Adele, Adele co-writes her songs. like, And sometimes she writes them in full. But basically, your whatever the case may be, your piano chords and your vocal melody are more or less there, written by the artist. Or if it's an artist who writes music on, say, a guitar or, or something along those lines. Sometimes they co-write it with somebody else, and that person is there. The producer will usually draw music charts 
maybe it's sheet music. Maybe it's just, you know, here's here's the basic chords of the song. Come up with something. And then they'll call in studio musicians most of the time. If it's a band, you know, the band will often record all their parts, although not always. Um, I'll get into that a little bit. But um, you basically have a click track, like a metronome, mm. that just gets pumped into a headphones, into the headphones, and you'll have like, okay, drummer, here's your click track. Here's going to be roughly what this sounds like. Guitarist, here's your click, click track. Here's your chord sheet. Come up with a melody that goes with this. Bassist, come up with a bass line that goes with this. And then when you get a rough mix of all the instruments, that's when you bring in the vocalist to do the actual actual recording. They'll have already done a scratch vocal, but that's when they'll do the actual recording that'll be used in the mix. And then it gets mixed together. Okay. So different producers are different. Um, Bob Rock, who, you know, famously produced Motley Crue and Metallica. Um, he was very big on getting all the musicians playing live together. Even if they weren't all being recorded at the same time, he wanted to get a vibe. He always wanted the vibe of a live recording. So he always wanted all the instruments in there playing at the same time. That was his individual style. But that is rare. So your version there, not that far off. Just reverse the order a little bit. Okay, fascinating. Yeah. So I appreciate that answer. That is wonderful. That gives me um, something to kind of intro in here. As I talk about um, a studio musician primarily, uh, and, and the guy I'm talking about today, uh, and I've already, you know, I talked about Carol Kay a while back, who is, you know, maybe the most prolific studio bassist ever. Today, I want to talk about Tim Pierce, who is maybe the most prolific uh, studio guitarist of the last 40 or so years. And just to circle back around, you're absolutely right with your assumption. Even with that preface, that name means nothing to me. And here's the thing. I, I am going to go down some of his um, some of his works, and I'll be interested to know what you recognize or what stands out to you. So, um, basic background on Tim Pierce. Born in Albuquerque, New Mexico in 1959, Tim Pierce is an L.A.-based studio guitarist who's been something of the go-to for music producers in the area since the early 80s. He was inspired by Jimi Hendrix to pick up the guitar as a teenager. Uh, and, you know, from that time, he cobbled together various gigs, including teaching guitar, playing in several bands, and, and a little bit of studio work throughout the 70s before he started playing on Rick Springfield's early albums and eventually joined his band and his touring band. Okay. So in the early in the early 80s he did a little bit of studio work for Rick Springfield, played on his local band and then picked up the touring gig and that was his early 80s. Around that time he was still doing a little bit of studio work. He worked at Bon Jovi a little bit at the time, um a few other people, but in the first like half of the 80s, he was touring with Rick Springfield, doing the Jesse's Girl tour, doing all those early Rick Springfield albums. Okay. And, and just to speak on it real quick, like I know we're going to talk about him and his career as a studio musician, but like to the unquestioning mind, that is to say my mind, I definitely always carried this assumption that like, the guitarist in a band plays the track and you either have a situation where it's Tony Iommi or Dimebag Daryl or somebody who it's like, okay, that is a capital name. Everybody knows this guitarist. It's part of the point mm -hmm. or to go back to Adele, um, you know, you have 
whatever the guy, whatever the guy's name who is on stage for the tour with Adele or Rick Springfield, and it just so happens that person is also the one who is recording the guitar track. And so there was kind of this two-tier. You were either well-known or obscure, but you're still like the guitarist for that band. And so just to sit here and recognize that there is a third level of even greater obscurity is interesting. Yeah. and Well, and that's the thing. It can vary so much. If you want to talk about Black Sabbath and Tony Iommi, Tony Iommi did track the guitar parts for Black Sabbath, especially in those early albums. And sure, occasionally they would bring in another person to like maybe add layers or do a little bit of a different a different idea. But by and large, for those bands, especially in that era, what you had was what you got. You take someone like Rick Springfield. Rick Springfield didn't play, you know, he wasn't the Rick Springfield band. It was Rick Springfield. He wrote the songs, but he would get other musicians in. Rick Springfield didn't play the drums. He wasn't tracking bass. Sure. So he might have a, he might bring in some studio people, and those studio people are professional studio musicians. That is their bread and butter. And then when it comes time to do the tour, Rick Springfield may know some of those folks, or maybe he just goes, okay, we're going to just audition some touring musicians. And these are people who, just like the studio musicians, make their living doing studio work. You get touring musicians who make their living being the backing band for a solo artist. David Bowie did not work with the same guitar player all the time on every tour. He would right. change it. He would change things up. Adele has a full band that may or may not have people who carry over from from tour to tour. But the point is, Adele is the main person. So who's behind her doesn't necessarily matter as much. A lot of times they're there for a paycheck. Maybe they're not. Honestly, Jim Steinman played piano for most of the Meatloaf tours. Because, you know, he was maybe the only person who fucking could. Right. But it just kind of depends. Well, and Meatloaf is a is a especially good example to dive into because, you know, we've talked about how much I love Meatloaf and Bad Out of Hell. And specifically, if you go on YouTube and you watch, like, specifically the Bad Out of Hell era music videos, which were mostly just studio uh not studio mostly just like live performances stage performances, stage yeah. performances i did absolutely carry this assumption that like yeah okay that guy is meatloaf's drummer that guy is meatloaf's guitar player todd, those three are meatloaf's backing vocalists yeah but the thing is bad out of hell todd rundgren played all the guitars on bad out of hell he also produced the album do you think todd rundgren was in meatloaf's touring band yes no <laughs> Todd Rundgren was busy doing his own solo career and producing weird concept albums and other people's albums and doing other shit. Sure, sure. But so this is the difference between someone who has my level of music appreciation sure. and someone who has your level of music appreciation. Which there you I'm, go. Yeah, I'm not ashamed to say is like much greater. <laughs> You're the movie guy. I'm the music guy. It's how we do. Yeah. Um, so... Um, Tim Pierce, you know, started really getting some success with Rick Springfield's touring band, but he realized he didn't really like being in a touring band. He didn't like the travel so much. He really did not like playing the same songs night after night. That was a big hang-up for him. So while he loved Rick Springfield, while he continued to play on Rick Springfield albums, 
he did decide, you know what? I think I want to stay in LA and I want to do the studio thing. I want that to be my full-time gig. So he began picking up studio work much more seriously in the like early mid eighties um, among works he did. Um, and I'm just going to go down this list. And afterwards I'm going to ask you to keep a rough tally of songs you're familiar with backslash love sure. um, Bon Jovi's runaway. He did the early demos for that. Belinda Carlisle's heaven on earth meatloaf's bad out of hell too. Um, Celine Dion's all coming back to me. The goo goo dolls iris for which he played mandolin okay. uh, and slide guitar. Natasha Bedingfield's Unwritten, Michael Jackson's Black and White, Tina Turner's Simply the Best, Shinedown's Hold the Sound of Madness album, uh, Bette Midler's Bathhouse Betty, Rob Thomas's Lonely No More, Kesha's Rainbow, the soundtracks for Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Disney's Tarzan, Rent, The Ugly Truth, 2012, and Tiny Toon Adventures and loads upon loads of songs for Colby Calais, Selena Gomez, Shakira, Barry Manilow, Phil Collins, Olivia Newton-John, Christina Aguilera, Madonna, Jason Mraz, Kenny Loggins, Joe Cocker, and like everybody else, including Adele. All right. So yeah, before that got towards the very end where you were just shouting out names, I, I was keeping a track and, you know, 10 of those songs slash pieces are things i'm familiar with like listeners you can't see the way my eyes lit up when you said that this is the guy who played the iconic mighty Morphin power rangers theme song that we have talked ad nauseum about how much we dearly love Yeah, but also you know, uh, Iris. I hearing that is like okay, holy shit. Yeah, that's like millennial. Don't stop believing. Well, and like, uh, Sound of Madness is an album that like I bought for myself and took a like I had a little bit of a shine down phase, and so to hear that, I just go so wait. Is he not the guitarist for Shinedown? So he actually, I read an interview with him where he talked about this. He got brought on to add to that album. Zach Myers is the guitarist for Shinedown, co-wrote all the songs, played, you know, the basic, a lot of the basic stuff. But they brought in Tim Pierce to add parts. Sometimes he would add a lead part. Sometimes he'd add melody parts or new rhythm parts. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's not necessarily that he's a musician being brought in to do, you know, all of the recording. Although that does happen sometimes as well. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not even going to front on that. I, I can tell the story of how uh, when Brian Wilson did Pet Sounds, the only thing that really any of the Beach Boys played on that album were their vocal tracks. Mm -hmm. uh, I think maybe they had Carl track a few guitar parts um, Carl and Al, but very, very little. Really, Brian Wilson was content to use Hal, Hal Blaine and Carol Kay and all these well-known L.A. studio musicians, the people who did Phil Spector's work, to track almost all the album. Really, the Beach Boys vocals were the only thing most of them played on. So that does happen. But in a case like that Shinedown album... They wrote the songs. They were just like, this needs a little something extra. Let's bring in some folks. And they were like, okay, Tim Pierce, we're, this is our song. Probably needs a little bit of something. Can you, you know, 
and this actually gets in nicely as to how this kind this kind of work actually goes for them. It is all right. You're here. Um, here's a song. Here's your chord chart. We need something. Go. Okay, I don't like that idea. Got anything else? Okay, cool. Um, let's do two tracks of that. Okay, cool. You're done. Alex, you realize I, I never caught this. This is the voice acting of music. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I don't even front about that. All right. This makes so much more sense why you love all these studio musicians. I do. I mean, that's the thing. Like, this kind of production work, it's it's so... I am always amazed with people who are the best at what they do and never get recognition for. You know, Tim Pierce is someone who, you're right, he was on, he played on You'll Be In My Heart on the Tarzan soundtrack. And that was one session, like one day session. How baller is that song? How incredible is that song? And if you listen to it, think about the guitar part in that song. And to think that a dude did that in like a couple of hours. Yeah. Just came in. He pretty much saw the chord charts and went, okay, uh, let's play through a couple times and I'll see what I can come up with. And that is what you have. And the, the fascinating and honestly quite lovely thing, every every time we do one of these loves and you bring it to the table... I and I think the listeners understand a little more than maybe we did just how wide and big and expansive the music industry is. And yet so tiny. Because again, this one dude did all of those songs I just listed and more. Sure. Like if you go on Tim Pierce's discography, like there's a whole Wikipedia page for it. There's artists I've never even heard of on there. Tons of them. And he just keeps this repertoire and he works, you know, more days than not. Mm. And he straight up talks it like he'll, he, he has a YouTube channel and he'll talk about shit. And he, he's done a couple of interviews, but he's basically just like, yeah, no, I might book like, you know, a 12 hour session with Jason Mraz and go, all right, well, I know that's coming up. So uh, in the meantime, I'm going to book like a bunch of like one and two hour sessions with these indie musicians because I know I'll have the big payday with the Jason Mraz session. And that way I can, you know, keep my chops up, but uh, just, you know, fill in the rest there. And this is, this is just this dude's life. This is just what he does. And I, the thing I love about him is, and again, just like with Carol Kay and just like with the voice actors we cover, the first really thing, the first thing that I always feel compelled to talk about is that no one knows who the fuck this guy is. Yeah. And yet every single person listening to this podcast, I guarantee you, if has heard something that he's played on. Every single like if if I want to do the my parents test here, I know for a fact my parents own the Shakira and Santana albums that he has played on. Something I learned from researching him. Santana doesn't really like to play rhythm parts that much. So he'll bring in studio musicians to play the rhythm parts so that he can play lead over them. Sure. Santana doesn't want to play chords. He just wants to play his, you know, crazy electric lines. Uh, that makes sense with Santana. Yeah, totally does. But there we go. Like, Tim Pierce, pass Tim Pierce, a white dude from Albuquerque, New Mexico, 
who is like eight years younger than them, my parents have heard multiple tracks that he has played on. I'm I'm just now that I've seen it, I can't unsee just the comparison to like a Rob Paulson or a Tom Kenny who yeah. like both of our parents probably would not know the name of but like put on SpongeBob or were in the room when we were watching it. I also love like one of the most fascinating people in the world to me are the people who go to LA and practice dentistry. <laughs> okay, say more about that. There's just something about like the infrastructure people of and, and LA is a better example than like New York or Chicago or anything like that. Cause LA is where you go to be a star, where you go to be famous. And granted, there's probably like a couple dozen dentists in LA who are hoping to be the next Ken, uh, Ken Jong and like make it big and they've got a good five minutes, but I guarantee you there are dentists and plumbers and city planning contractors who are like, yes, I live in LA and I don't really give a shit about the Hollywood glitz and glam of it. And I kind of put in the same category, the guy who lives in LA and is one of the most widely recognized guitarists of an era, but does it not for the fame and just does it because he got tired playing the same couple Rick Springfield tracks over and over again and decided he wanted a little bit more of a challenge. The guy who nine to five just lays down iconic guitar tracks is a fascinating person to me. Thank you. That's what I've been saying. That's, <laughs> that is why I am obsessed with these studio musicians and these voiceover people because these are the soundtrack of our existence, but we don't get their names. Yeah. Like it is it is insane to me. Like, okay, the other point that I did want to discuss, and this gets into it perfectly, is that like most studio musicians, Tim Pierce is kind of a chameleon who can blend beautifully into anything. But he also has this amazingly recognizable vibe that I'm really only just now starting to really notice without prompting. Um, so, you know, he plays on Shakira's Whenever, Wherever, which is a song in which the guitars are not the main focus. Like, if you think about it, like, if you really listen to the song, you go, oh, yeah, no, that's totally an electric guitar. Like, I, I can hear that. And there's a definite vibe to that that the same guy did the slide guitar part on Iris and the backing guitar on All Coming Back to Me Now isn't readily apparent, but knowing it's him, you kind of learn that vibe. I mm. talked about with the Desmond Child episode, how I know Desmond Child songs without knowing they're Desmond Child songs. There's something just about them. I'm just getting there with Tim Pierce. So I didn't know this term I'm about to explain when we did the Desmond Child episode, but since then... I have become aware of a, a term in specifically in, in anime okay. um, called Sakuga. Okay. And Sakuga 
translates roughly to drawing pictures but like the actual like when people talk about it is sakuga is like the trademark the visual trademark of an animator it's the specific way this one guy does an explosion or does fire that nobody else does it in that same exact way Mm -hmm. or the way this other animator like you know does a a fight scene or does like motion graphics or, or something like that and what you were describing is a audio equivalent of sakuga i i would see that and and you know most people would call it like a musical proclivity Sure. It's like a, 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 a tone that someone uses that's very unique to them. Um, just something something very particular. People like to talk about how Hendrix's tone was really unique. Um, so many of his songs would center around a very particular chord, which gets called the Hendrix chord. Really, it is a, um, uh, I think it's a seven flat nine chord. Uh, which means nothing to any of you, and that's okay. But it's like that particular chord and this particular tone he got with his Stratocaster um, and the handful of pedals. You know a Tom Morello solo when you hear it. Uh Even if you don't understand anything about music theory or guitar effects, you know a Morello solo when you hear it. I can recognize when Tony Iommi plays a guitar part, when Flea plays a bass part. I I just know them. Yeah. Even if even before I could name it with music theory, I could do that. With movies, you know a Wes Anderson shot versus a Kubrick shot, even though they are using almost the exact same tools for those shots. Yeah, that's a great example as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I know when I'm watching Robert Richardson. Yeah. I know when I'm watching a Spielberg movie. And I know what Spiel and I know a Spielberg trademark that I always look for when I watch a Spielberg movie. I think I've talked about this on the podcast. Spielberg always includes a shot that is through something. In Schindler's List, it's through the little waterfall in the apartment. In um, War of the World, it's the shot through the camera that's fallen on the ground. It's a shot through water, a shot through a pair of glasses. He always does this shot that is through something. It's just a funky little trademark that he has. And you just, you, when you recognize that, it's so satisfying to recognize it with someone like Tim Pierce. And I can't name it yet. I can't tell you exactly what it is. I just know that I start to hear these parts and I just go, that sounds Tim Piercey. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a particular interval. I don't know if it's a guitar tone thing. I know he really, like he has flat out said, I, I read an interview with him. He said, there's really, someone asked him, what are your top five guitars? And he could all, he named three. He said there's three, really, that do everything for him. I know he owns more guitars. He's done reviews about them on his YouTube channel. But the fact that he can name a Gibson Les Paul, a Gibson ES-335, and a, Strat- and a Fender Stratocaster, and he's like, these are the three guitars I actually need. I can do everything I do with these three guitars. And I'm just sitting here like, <laughs> okay. Sure. Okay. Fuck me, then. <laughs> And I, I just adore that. I, I adore that there is some... I'm still figuring him out. But the fact that I now know so much of what he works on... And again, it, I cannot stress this enough. The dude who Hans Zimmer calls for a bunch of shit. The dude who played guitar on Tiny Toon Adventures songs. 
also did the fucking Mighty Morphin Power Rangers theme song, also did the goddamn Shinedown album, also did fucking Heaven on Earth. Yeah. When you when you say it in that term, it is kind of mind-bending. Yeah. So um, the, the side final note that I did want to talk about, uh, and I've mentioned it a couple times here, he has a YouTube channel where he discusses his life as a studio musician, tells stories, gives lessons. And it's, it's a solid, great YouTube channel. He talks about playing in the backing band for the Grammys. He had a spectacularly bad Tonight Show performance and how he comes up with his parts and his gear. And he's just, he's a charming old man. Like, at the end of the day, you watch any of his YouTube videos, he starts them all with him just, like, clearly having a ball playing along to, like, a solo that he recorded years ago, and he'll talk a little bit about it, and then he'll tell some story, or he'll he'll just discuss something, and he's just this very quiet, very demure, like, hey, everybody, how are you doing today? Is he the Bob Ross of electric guitar? You know, I don't hate that. <laughs> I think he's. I think he's got a little bit more of a like sense. He, he tells a story on another YouTube channel, um, the Rick Beato channel. I talked about him when I uh, discussed um, quantization in music. But he told this story about doing a session for Adele and Adele being like, "I hate wah wah pedals," and like just it's 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 gloriously sardonic. And he's not making fun of Adele. He just thought it was really funny because like if you're a guitar player, wah pedals are usually like one of your premier pieces of equipment and he's just he's just a charming old man he just tells funny stories he talks about how michael jackson like was at a session with him and like was fascinated with his pedal board and was just like you have so many toys <laughs> and and it's just like just this charming old man sure and I I don't watch his channel that much. He he tends to do these very long in-depth discussions and videos and it's some of the music theory is still above my pay grade to actually follow. But I, I, I what I have seen of it, he is humble, he is kindly. I just like him to have a little bit more attention. He he has an online guitar course which I have not taken, um but you know, that's part of how he makes his living as well. Um, but he also just teaches parts on YouTube for free on top of that. And just, and, and he'll do these, you know, not right, not, they're not gig vlogs, but these like vlogs of his studio sessions that are just, you know, him in his home studio or at another studio. And, you know, he's tracking a thing for the Supernatural soundtrack. He did, he did the music for the first five seasons of Supernatural. <laughs> like he just played guitar on those for whoever, like he just... And it's whatever the individual session is there. He played for the Jonas Brothers. Because I guarantee you, the Jonas Brothers didn't play guitar on their own albums. Like, well, no, that I buy. Yeah, but that's the point. He's just like, and, he, and he's he's never says a nasty word about a single artist he works with, even though I'm sure he must have those stories. He He's just a nice old guy who just wants to play guitar and come up with interesting stuff and then do it again the next day and teach people and help people. And he's just... I just want him to get a little bit more attention. I, he's not going to be the last studio musician I talk about. He's not going to, you know, I, 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 it angers me, Andy, that more people do not recognize the folks who actually create the things that they love. All yeah. they see is the name and the name is good. There's nothing wrong with the name, but I want people to recognize that 
behind the voices, behind the notes, behind all the stuff, there are actual really talented people who if they actually cared to be those artists, they have the technical ability to do so. But instead, they would rather live quiet lives where they are just creative on a brilliant level. And I want that recognized. So Tim Pierce, uh, I'm going to link his YouTube channel in here. Um, I, I highly recommend check out any of his videos or even just peruse that Wikipedia page of his discography. Just recognize things a little bit and take a moment to acknowledge that there are people who are behind the things we love that don't really get much credit, don't get their names out there as much, and they deserve regard and respect. So that yeah. is me. Thank you so much, man. I mean, absolutely. Um, I'm thankful to know this guy's name and, and gain a better uh, appreciation for him. And you know, I'm, I'm down for every studio musician you want to talk about at this point, because every, every time has been a delight. I love it. Let's find out if Tim Pierce has played uh, on any of the songs in <laughs> our next segment. You know, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, so I had the hate and, and funnily enough, you sent me your notes beforehand and I'll be perfectly honest. I didn't even look at them until I had come up with my own idea. Mm -hmm. So we're very on theme this uh, week, but that was completely unintentional today. I want to talk about why I hate the parents music resource center, which a lot of people will recognize better as moms against rock and roll. Yep, I know about this one. I knew you did, yeah. You know, I, I suspected very much that you were familiar with this, but I want to ask you for a personal anecdote. Did your parents ever try to censor the music you, Alex, listened to growing up? You know, uh, and I think I've talked about this on the show a little bit, really not that much. Um, my parents... And, and I and I will fully state this up front. Uh, and, you know, my parents listen to the show. I don't think they'll disagree with this. My parents were too busy dealing with the working and the feeding me and my sister and the getting us to college and the making sure we weren't total delinquents of it all. Mm. That They just kind of were like, uh, he gets good grades. We're, the cops haven't been called. No one's telling us he's destroying things. Whatever. Like, my parents spent a little bit of time on censoring my TV watching, which they didn't follow through on because I still absolutely watched The Simpsons and South Park and Power Rangers. They didn't really fuck with my music that much. I think my mother heard me, overheard me blasting Eminem while I was cleaning the bathroom one day and her <laughs> just being like, that's, um... That doesn't sound, you know, too, too, that, that, that sounds pretty dirty right there. And I was like, yeah. And she was just like, play it a little quieter. <laughs> and like, that was about it. So I didn't really get a whole lot of that. That wasn't really their vibe. Okay. Well, fair enough. And, and bless your mom for giving you that control and letting you make your own decisions. You know, I, I never had anybody try to censor the music I ingested but I think we've also talked about how I had kind of a very pick and choose insular uh, music appetite growing up. Sure. I will say um, my wife, uh, my, my father-in-law absolutely like 
would take albums that my wife bought as a teenager, listen to them, and then re-burn them and remove any song that had like profanity or it was a lot of My Chemical Romance. So like suicide idolation and and stuff like that see i could not imagine my parents giving enough of a shit to do all of that just like we don't have time for this bullshit that's fair and then the other example i know is my cousin um specifically uh when blink 182's take off your pants and shirt album came out my cousin got that and like showed me a bunch of the songs and then my uncle like was walking by the room and was like, wait, what What the hell am I hearing? And then took the album, read the lyric book, and confiscated the CD. Those are my uh, secondhand accounts of parental censorship over their own kids. Sure. I want to talk about a group of parents that tried to censor music for everyone's kids. <laughs> oh, God, please. I'm I'm so ready for this discussion. So, the Parents Music Resource Center, or the PMRC, was an American committee formed in 1985 with the stated goal of increasing parental control over the access of children to music that they deemed to have violent, drug-related, or sexual themes by labeling albums with parental advisory stickers. This is the group that invented the parental advisory explicit content sticker. Yep. Which, side note, like my earliest dream of being like some punk rock star, I wanted the name of the band to be Parental Advisory. You know there's already a band called Parental Advisory, right? I did not. Is, <laughs> is their first album. But tell me this. Is their first album explicit content? I don't think so. See, that was going to be the whole point. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, uh, this committee was founded by four women known as the Washington Wives in reference to their husbands' connections to government in the Washington, D.C. area, with the single most famous name associated being Tipper Gore, wife of Al. Yep. She Murphy. Blah, 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 Tipper Gore. Hey, Murph, you can't blah, 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 the Ayatollah. She, um, she started it after discovering her kid listening to, I believe it was Prince's Darling Nikki. Don't quote me on that part. Well, we're going to turn right back around and talk about Darling Nikki, so I believe that. Um, that That is the, like, stated, pulled-off Wikipedia um, introduction to this group. It was a, a, a basically a, a group of Washington housewives who, at this point... Uh, Al Gore wasn't vice president yet, so I don't no. think Tipper had anything much better to do. He was a senator. Sure. A bunch of wives who just took on a cause. And I think a really important thing to go into is recognizing this organization was formed under the shadow of the Reagan administration. Mm -hmm. And this was the late 80s. This was the conservative, like rise of that decade. And so it, it makes sense that like this would be a thing that naturally comes about. A bunch of people deciding that they know what's best about the uh, media consumption of the entire country. Um, the group was financed by Joseph Coors of the shitty beer magnet family 
And Mike Love of the Beach Boys. That I did not know, and it's very disappointing to me. It's very disappointing, and I will now and forever refer to Mike Love as a traitor to music and enemy of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone knows Carl was the best Beach Boy anyway. Well, isn't Mike the one who comes off as a total asshole in the movie uh, Love and Mercy? Let's Let's be clear. Mike Love comes off as an asshole in every single movie version of the... He comes off as an asshole in the sh- in the shitty VH1 biopic. He comes off as an asshole in every documentary of the Beach Boys ever. Mike Love was legitimately a tremendous asshole. Well, clearly, enemy of fun. Fool <laughs> this man! Um, and so the, the, the group came together and came about and basically lobbied and proposed for this idea of creating a music rating scale uh, very similar to the MPAA's film rating scale. Mm-hmm. Only they kind of wanted to take it a step farther and go into these hyper-specific and judgy categories like rated V for violence or rated S for sex. Uh, The group most famously put out a list called the Filthy 15. And I'm going to uh, list the, I'm going to list these songs in their entirety. But the top of the list is Prince's Darling Nikki, Mm -hmm. which they called out for uh, the lyrical contents of Sex and Masturbation. We also have Sheena Easton's Sugar Walls. Great song. Judas Priest's Eat Me Alive. They have worse. (laughs) <laughs> Indeed. Uh, a song called Strap On Robbie Baby by Vanity. Meh. Motley Crue's Bastard. Meh. ACDC's Let Me Put My Love Into You. Terrible song. <laughs> also, like, it's ACDC. Pick me a song that is not actually about coming. Yeah, that is that is admittedly the ACDC song with the lyric, Let Me Cut Your Cake With My Knife. <laughs> Fair. That's a bad song, Andy. <laughs> uh, weird to me, Twisted Sisters, We're Not Gonna Take It. For anti-authoritarianism. Or for anti-authority-based themes. Right, which, I mean, to to really dig into that, that's maybe the most insidious and unsettling thing of all, that they were like, oh, we can't have this riot music. Mm-hmm. But also, like, We're Not Gonna Take It has always seemed to me as one of the, like, tamest... Yep. And like toothless. The melody is copped from O Come All Ye Faithful. Right. So a whole lot to look into there. We also had Madonna's Dress You Up. Not her worst song. Uh, a song called Animal, parentheses, Fuck Like a Beast by a band named Wasp. Ah, uh, that's, that's actually a decent Wasp song. Uh, I'm unfamiliar with them. Uh, we have Death Leopard's High and Dry Saturday Night. Not their worst song either. <laughs> Merciful Fates Into the Coven. Boring. The only one of these, or no, sorry, one of the two of these that is listed as being uh, cited for mentioning the occult. Fair. Weirdly, Black Sabbath's Trashed. Not their worst song. And also, not, like, to go from, okay, we don't like this song called Into the Coven, because it mentions the occult, and then the one Black Sabbath song to be something that is not one of the several, like, occult, Satanist, adjacent... There are only two Black Sabbath songs that are about the occult. All right. They are Black Sabbath and NIB. Trust me on this. All right. All right. (laughs) If you don't consider Mr. Crowley... 
That's that, just Ozzy. That's Ozzy. I see. Okay. That's Ozzy's first solo album. All right, fair enough. Uh, we also have the Mary Jane Girls song, In My House. I don't even know that one. Yeah. Uh, Venom Possessed. Good song. Which is the other occult cited song. Good song. And finally, Cindy Lauper's Shebop. Great song. And also, like, okay, Motley Crue, ACDC, Def Leppard, Twisted Sister, Prince, I get. And then at the end, just throw in Cindy Lauper. Well, it was her song about masturbation. Eh. Female masturbation. Well, and right. And so that's the real reason why uh, nobody wanted to allow it notice that billy idol's version of dancing with myself is not on here and that's about male masturbation you know what fair um so yeah these like i I, i'm all this happened before either of us were born so i can't sit here and like cite like okay they put this in magazines i'm pretty sure this became like a hot button issue that was then put on the news and you had anchors across the country warning um parents about the their kids listening to Prince songs and then going off and fucking each other. Um, the the PRCMA, that's PMRC. The PMRC puts out this list and then like goes into Congress basically to um, or goes into the Senate to like say, okay, these are the songs we're citing as an example. We need to have like ways to control and regulate musical content that we deem distasteful in any way and corrupting the morals of our youth how much do you know about those congressional hearings i only know what i'm about to say is that so they propose that and then you have the trio of d snyder frank zappa and fucking john John denver Coming up and testifying and being like, hey, I, I'm i pretty sure this uh, kind of tramples all over our First Amendment rights. Yep. Any of you out there, if you have a spare few hours, look up the highlights. They're on YouTube of some of the congressional hearings. Like, they are incredible. Frank Zappa is brilliant with his free speech defense. John Denver... John Denver was so important to this because John Denver was an artist who, like, no one is going to call John Denver. My mother loves John Denver. Yeah. Like, John Denver was the most innocuous artist, but he came out to be like, no, this is wrong. I don't care that my music is not on this list. I don't care that you're not coming for me. I care about music and I care about not doing censorship. So I'm out here to stand against this. D. Snyder was incredible because D. Snyder showed up to the congressional hearings. Like John Denver and Frank Zappa showed up in suits. D. Snyder showed up in full denim with like cut off t-shirt with his giant twisted sister hair and the full makeup and is like sitting there talking to them. And he's like, uh, like they asked him at one point about um, the song Under the Blade, which is a twisted sister song. And they said that Under the Blade was about sadomasochism. And D. Snyder goes, um, no, uh, Under the Blade is not about sadomasochism. That is about my guitarist's throat operation. We wrote a song about the throat operation. And you all thought that it was about sadomasochism. It's not my fault that it's not my fault that Mrs. Gore has a dirty mind and reads sadomasochism into that. And then they're sitting there like, well, when you were insulting 
Mrs. Gore and he's like, or Senator Gore's wife. This is this is being said to them. They mm -hmm. go, when you were insulting Senator Gore's wife, and Dee Snyder interrupts them and is like, uh, excuse me, I was not attacking Senator Gore's wife. I was attacking a member of the PMRC. There's one point where they was talking about some one of the songs um, having occult themes, and he straight up said, like, I don't believe that Christianity has anything to do with morality. <laughs> like, Dee Snyder came for their, and they're sitting here looking at Dee Snyder like he's like he, like he's like he's some kind of burnout. They didn't know that sure. D. Snyder is actually like a very intelligent man. He came out with this like this speech written on like notebook paper, but that he had honed for weeks until it was just this like sonic bomb. D. Snyder's testimony in here is absolutely incredible. I love that, and I really, really want the movie about this so that we can get like this story shown up even more and in. Like more dramatic ways. You know what I'm here for? I'm very here for it. <laughs> oh, God, I love that. Um, yeah, so just to talk about it a little more, um, something I did do in research is what's really funny is like in, in the uh, prosecution of rock and roll music, you had Paula Hawkins, who is a member of the, um, this acronym fucks me up, Paula Hawkins, who was a member of the PMRC. Um, basically presenting a, a bunch of record covers, which were Pyromania by Def Leppard. Great album. Wow by Wendy O. Williams. Okay album. And the Wasp debut cover. Yeah. <laughs> Bad album, but fun cover. And then played the music videos Hot for Teacher, which, okay, I, I see why you would say that's a defense or a, a thing to prosecute against. And we're not going to take it. And then goes ahead and says, much has changed since Elvis's seemingly innocent times. Acting like people weren't out for Elvis Presley's fucking blood when he came out on the scene. And was just like fucking. <sighs> okay, that pisses me off. Because Ed Sullivan would refuse to have Elvis on his show if they did not agree to only filming him from the waist up. Mm -hmm. Because Elvis humping the back of a fucking guitar was going to destroy teenagehood. And it, it goes into something that I've, I think you and I have talked about, but the, like, the sliding scale of generational acceptability and this idea that, like, oh, swing music was super fucking dangerous in the 30s and 40s, and that turned into, okay, swing music is something the whole family can enjoy, but oh my God, Elvis Presley turns into, we are gone from the innocent days of Elvis Presley to, I guarantee you, like, Joe Biden doesn't give a fuck about a Def Leppard album. No, absolutely not. Yeah. And I... No matter no matter what you do, and this is kind of a this is an example of an insidious thing that the conservative right has always done, but you give them an inch and then the next generation like tries to pull it even farther. Yeah. I mean okay, so um your wife actually got me into an artist named Ashniko, mm -hmm. who is uh a an American rapper based in London, and she does songs that are very deliberate, like overtly sexual, very much constantly talking about fellatio and analingus. Fat and... pussy like Santa. 
That dick tastes like Yankee Candle. <laughs> but also, like, she calls herself a demi-devil in her songs, yeah. you know? And, and you know, it is it is a separation from, say, the Mayhem songs, where you know the lead singer just blew his brains out, and then the guitarist came and ate those brains. Like, it's a far cry from that, and that music was okay. Um, but it's, it's shit that never would have flown. And the thing is, that music has always existed. I can give you examples of old blues songs that are filthier than anything Ash Nico ever put out. Mm. Anything on this uh, on this here Filthy 15 list. This shit has always been there. This idea that there was some sweet innocence to Elvis. Like, fuck you exactly. Yeah. Fuck. The fact is, people were upset that Elvis was playing black music. Yeah. And they thought that this was going to result in rampant sexuality of teenagers and moral decay. And honestly, here's the thing. That shit was already going to happen. Elvis was a product of that movement, not and uh, not the uh, spark of it. This music and the music that we have today, the things like... You're right. Def Leppard is fucking tame. You can play Pour Some Sugar On Me at a fucking wedding. Yeah. And it is dope. That is fantastic. <laughs> I played a Prince song at my wedding, and I was only upset that I couldn't have more Prince songs. Indeed. Um, you know, the optimistic take of this kind of, I, I brought it up a moment ago as like a, a insidious thing of the conservative right, but the fact is the ways that music by every generation is able to get more overt and more over the top and more like turn your grandma's face white and and make her faint speaks to the idea that this failed and this did fail it, it got a, a token victory in being able to create the parental advisory sticker um, but I, the last thing I want to say specifically about the PMRC is I want to quote Frank Zappa, um, again, talking before Senate, saying, The PMRC proposal is an ill-conceived piece of nonsense which fails to deliver any real benefits to children, infringes the civil, civil liberties of people who are not children, and promises to keep the courts busy for years dealing with the interpretational and enforcemental problems inherent to the proposal's design. That's a very eloquent, go you Frank Zappa way of saying, like, this is fucking stupid bullshit. Frank Zappa was a genius. Yeah. Like, out front. I don't know if you know about this particular denouement, but those parental advisory stickers did mean that albums were curtailed from certain retailers. Walmart sure. still will not carry an album with a parental advisory sticker, which is why you get alternate versions of various albums. Right. Basically, it's Walmart. But there's two fun denouements there. Number one, the explicit advisory sticker boosted record sales. Sure. You have to remember, this was the era of, like, metal all over MTV. And if you got a parental advisory sticker, it was a guarantee that some disaffected teenager was going to buy it. This is the same, like... Time, this is the same like five year time where Showgirls is in theaters and you have ushers checking the ID of every person who goes to see Showgirls to make sure they're not underage kids there to like jack it. Yeah. And that tanked Showgirls' box office, but it made Showgirls blossom in home video as like 
hey, here's a really well done softcore porn you can laugh at. Straight up. The other thing is that now in the era of streaming, parental advisory stickers are largely moot. Sure. Like they are completely unimportant because I can pull up my Spotify playlist. I can pull up YouTube and I can, or, you know, the other, the other day when y'all were hanging out at our place, Mariah and I put on a 2000s music video list just because we were like, let's watch a bunch of 2000s music videos. And some of those music videos were the like explicit version or were the non-explicit versions that were airing probably at 2 p.m. on BET and someone taped them. But a lot of them were highly explicit and it's not that hard for kids to access it anymore. And the fact of the matter is, and and I'm going to say this, um, parents, the shit that you pulled on kids like Mariah and Andy, the shit that you pulled for a lot of my friends where you controlled what they listened to, you can't do that anymore. So at this point, your responsibility, and I think this this was something that John Denver talked about in his congressional in the congressional hearing. It is the responsibility of a parent, not necessarily to screen and remove exposure for children, but to contextualize and teach their children what is and is not acceptable in reality. And if you're worried that art will destroy what your children will do in reality, will create something terrible and monstrous that is on you as a parent for not doing the right thing in terms of adding that context not in removing the exposure it is on the parents yeah absolutely that's a phenomenal button at the risk of putting out a worse one as the final button the last thing i want to say is you know the prmc basically had its moment and then kind of died out and we mm-hmm. we didn't get this totalitarian control over rock music as we knew it but this does not and has not stopped um mainly conservative parent adults um from trying to do this sort of shit this didn't stop uh people bring rob halford of Judas Priest into trial and trying to say that Rob Halford convinced two kids to commit suicide because of quote unquote subliminal messages in his music. This didn't stop um, people banning Eminem from, you know, uh, the Grammys. And there are so many consistent microaggressions is the wrong word but i'm going to use it against freedom of speech and specifically against like rock and roll and rap and the stuff that is deemed to be dangerous and corrupting of the moral bedrock of society Mm -hmm. and fortunately none of it has ever really gone anywhere but it's worth keeping an eye on and being aware of that has not stopped people from trying over and over and over again to finally get to something of a totalitarian entertainment system. And as long as they keep trying, we're going to have better and better music that we're going to surreptitiously listen to. That's a really good point. I love that. Thank you. Uh, Shall we move on to our question? Yes, let's go for it. Okay. Um, You uh, presented the format, so I'm more than happy to read the question. Go for it. This comes from our friends at relationships.txt, and this one 
has been sitting around my noodle for a while, so I'm, I'm happy we're finally getting to it. I slept with my girlfriend's mom two years ago. I can't tell her because I know she'll dump me and it'll probably end her parents' marriage. So let me first just say, I'm not the one in the wrong for this, but I have to say it somewhere. It's eating me alive. Two years ago, I was 19 and I met this woman while I was working as a personal trainer. She was in her 40s and looked like a 25-year-old. She took an interest to in me and invited me out a number of times, and we had sex a few times. After one of our meetups, she said it was wrong for someone of her age to be with me because I was too young and changed gyms. Fast forward, my girlfriend and I have been together for just under a year. She's amazing, and I love her so much. Two months ago, I met her family for the first time, and it was a shock. Like, she took me to the house where I had hooked up with a woman, and I felt like I was being pranked. Before I see her mom, it hits me. I have a type, and they both fit that type, so it made sense. I had been hooking up with a single mom, and now I'm with her daughter. But then her mom and dad pop out, and we both almost shit ourselves. I met her parents. They've been married for 20 years. I realized I had been a married woman's boy toy, and I felt incredibly ashamed. Later that week, her mom finds my number and tells me that I can never speak of what happened. She says that my girlfriend will hate me forever because I'll be the one who broke up her parents. So now I'm stuck keeping this a secret. She invited me to spend Thanksgiving with her family, and since my family is a thousand miles away and I already told my girlfriend I don't plan on going home, I don't really have an excuse not to go. So now I'm going to have to sit there at a table and enjoy Thanksgiving dinner with the woman I had an affair with, her husband, and her daughter whom I am now in love with. I'm fucked. So we're not allowed to do a The Graduate reference. We've already done Mrs. Robinson. That's what I thought. Well, we've done Mrs. Robinson. We haven't done Benjamin Braddock, who is Dustin Hoffman's character in The Graduate, but I see your point. <sighs> it's too obvious, Andy. <laughs> so what do we have here that could even remotely work for this? Um, have you ever heard of a show called Californication? Yes. Californication, for those of you who don't know, is what David Duchovny did after The X-Files and it's he he plays someone who is basically a sex addict which is funny because that's david duchovny anyway yeah but i could absolutely see uh david duchovny's character hank moody in this situation all right so we've got hank moody and we can just say your girlfriend and her mother yeah i see us becoming incredibly close great friends eventually oh. <clears throat> After the part where you hate my guts for a long, cold winter. Um, all right. I am here. For, what was his name again? Hank Moody. Hank Moody. We need to watch the rest of that show. I've only really seen the first season. <laughs> focus, Andy. Focus. Um, okay. So we've got Hank Moody. And you, you read it, so I'm going to start. When you say that you are fucked, Hank... I don't want to sugarcoat things. You kind of don't have a good situation here whatsoever because you can lie and you seem like the kind of person who is very, very uncomfortable with this lie. Um, or you can do the thing and just 
go ahead with things and do the thing and go ahead with things. You can do the thing in terms of being honest. And here's, here's the situation. Um, the only way you can probably keep your relationship with your girlfriend would be to continue this lie. I, it would be completely reasonable for her following the end of this revelation to be more preoccupied with her relationship with her mother, her parents' relationship with each other, and you would then become a point of pain. Even though you did not do anything wrong. As far as you knew, you had a few hookups with an attractive person who as far as you knew was, as far as she told you, was single. So you didn't do anything wrong here. Um, you basically need to decide if you can live with yourself, not only with the knowledge that you are dating a person and are in close proximity to a person who had an affair and clearly has never told anyone about that, who was asking you to keep that affair a secret, but also lying to your girlfriend who you love. I'm not gonna lie to you. There are people who comfortably do that. You might not be able to live with that. It's, it's entirely possible. I don't know what your moral compass is here, but you are torn up. So the right thing to do, truly, is to accept that you probably will not get to keep your relationship to tell the truth and to allow the consequences to fill out from there. That is the technical, in a Kantian sense, um, right thing to do. Um, and that'll cause hurt. That hurt is not your responsibility. It is not your responsibility that your girlfriend's mother um, stepped out and never never confessed it, never dealt with it, never did the right thing, um, and that she might lose her marriage and her relationship with her daughter because of that. But you also will, would face consequences for that and lose your relationship. So you either have a partially tainted relationship based on a lie, or you don't have any relationship and you do the right thing. I cannot give you the answer of what to do. I can only tell you this is the right thing to do. And if you decide to do the right thing, you need to be prepared for the consequences. You also need to be prepared for it to possibly come out someday. Even if you keep the secret that your girlfriend's mother might like this might be discovered. This kind of thing. I'm not someone who says like, oh, cheaters are always going to be discovered. That's not true at all. There are definitely cheaters who are never discovered. There are people who cheat for years. There are people who have whole second families and it's not discovered until they die. If it comes out that you had this affair with her, even though you kept the secret, you are still fucked. Right. And I want to step in here just to put a few more arrows in your quiver, Hank. My immediate take on it is you are not in the wrong for sleeping with a woman 
having that relationship end, beginning a new one, and then discovering that, you know, you were sleeping with your girlfriend's mother. That is in no way your responsibility. Where you could start to get in trouble and become an additional source of pain is the fact that this has been something you have kept to yourself for two months. You know, maybe it's a big enough deal that your girlfriend would understand why you didn't bring the situation up, but maybe it becomes this other thing of, oh my God, you knew all this time. You lied to me. How many times have you guys had sex in those two months? And that could become additional fuel to the fire of, okay, I, I cannot be in a relationship with you. The other thing is if you capitulate to your girlfriend's mother, you are signaling that this is something that she could use against you in a variety of different ways. This could be something that is then... I need you to do what I say or else I'm going to torpedo your relationship. You know, you don't know if uh, your girlfriend's parents have a falling out of some other way. If this doesn't become a vindictive, spiteful thing to potentially use. You don't know if your girlfriend's mother is going to get bored one day and decide, okay, well, I know you could keep it a secret before. Can you keep it a secret now? And actively try to hit on you maybe at that point you have cause to reverse threaten or, or maybe you don't it just sounds like a lot of stress and i i get you saying that you love this woman but this is a hornet's nest of stress in my opinion on multiple different levels um andy do i have your permission to be a moral purist <laughs> sure. You say that you love your girlfriend. If you selfishly choose to lie to her, to keep this from her, to allow her to not only have a relationship with you based on a lie, but have a relationship with her mother that is based on these lies, I would argue that you might love her but you do not respect her and you would rather selfishly have your very good relationship based on a lie than have a true valid relationship or allow your girlfriend to deal with the realities of this relationship because you want to stay with her there is a world where it would be selfish for you to say Let's say that it was the other way around. Let's say that um, your girlfriend's mother was telling you that she feels torn up and she wants to confess and you want to convince her not to because you don't want to blow up your relationship. That would be very explicitly selfish. Yeah, you'd be the asshole just in the same way that the mother is being the asshole. Yeah. Now, for you... Um, Again, you didn't do anything wrong. And at the conclusion of this, you know, it's possible you can live with yourself. It's possible you can have this lie. It's possible that y'all continue this relationship um, all the way to the end. And that ultimately you have a relationship founded on a lie and you have a happy life. 
because of that. That is entirely possible. It is also very unethical. And if I'm going to be my usual strictly ethical self, I'm going to tell you the move here is honestly blowing this up. It is. It is confessing. It is stating it. I don't know what kind of person your girlfriend is. Again, it would not surprise me if she just says, it is too painful for me to be around you. Even if she says, I know you didn't do anything wrong. If she just says, it is too painful for me to be around you, I cannot be with you anymore. That is entirely possible. It is also possible that in this trauma, you two are bonded closer. You don't necessarily know that. Although I'm not going to lie. I think the first option is more likely. It's the more human one. But if you really love her, if you really care about her, sometimes that means being the person who delivers something hurtful and losing that person because of it. Because otherwise you don't really respect her and you are clinging to this because you want to be with her. And that is the wrong thing to do. The right thing is to be willing to let go of your relationship, but to know that you did the right thing and that she can now take the next step in her life. Yeah. And obviously, it, uh, in an ideal world, you'd have some way to communicate with her and be like, is this something you want to deal with? Or is this something that you honestly can't handle and you would rather live? Like, you can't have that conversation without telling her exactly what it is. But it doesn't change what the technical right thing to do here is. Yeah, there's there's no assurance that Hank has that he's the only one. That's another thing. There's no assurance that Hank's girlfriend's mother would play by their own rules. It certainly sounds like they want to right now, but it's it's very dicey and just setting yourself up for basically, do you want to have a, a near lifetime of stress? Do you want to never be able to go on vacation with your girlfriend's parents? Because it's going to be weird as hell. I, I lean with Alex that, you know, telling Hank's girlfriend is the right move here. You know, doing the math, Hank's 21, 22. That's not, I, I understand you love this woman, but that's not the final, like, cutoff point for being able to find true love. And you'll be able to live with yourself better if you know that you do the right and correct thing here, even if that is opening up a whole world of pain that other people created, but you are helping inflict. You are not responsible for the fallout of other people's decisions. No. That is, and if you, if you blow this up, even if you are blamed for it, and you might be blamed for it, that is not your responsibility. You did not decide to have infidelity and to never come clean about it now you are choosing not to come clean about it yeah and it's a position you don't deserve and that sucks we have you know there's there's nothing but sympathy for me on this truly it's a situation that no one deserves to be in but you know, you basically, your choice is do the right thing or learn to live with not. Whatever you decide to do, um, just make sure that it is the right thing as far as you are concerned. 
my advice, do the right thing, even if it hurts. That's right. So all the best to Hank. You know, we're going to use the usual channels to try and get this out. This this is kind of an older question as it is. It's possible Hank had a very eventful Thanksgiving or Christmas <laughs> or New Year's. Um, but if you find yourself in a moral quagmire and you don't know what necessarily the right thing is to do and you would like two people's perfectly unqualified advice... You can send those questions into lovehaterelationshippodcast at gmail.com. We promise to read them and give you our full support in the situation. That's right. Uh, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. You can send us questions there. You can talk to us. You can see what random-ass shit we're tweeting about. Um, yeah, just, just, you know, interact with us. Oh, you can also rate and review us on any and or all of those, uh, podcatcher apps. That's right. You know, we, uh, we mentioned the Elizabeth Berkeley classic showgirls <laughs> and one of my favorite episodes of my other podcast cult fiction is the episode in which we watched showgirls. Um, so you can find Cult Fiction, which is my cult movie podcast with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson, everywhere that you can find love-hate relationship. You can find me, Andy Boel, on Twitter at JomoCop2113 or on Instagram at SirAcha with an extra A at the end. I'm sorry, I don't ever have good, like, handles. <laughs> uh, I have streamlined all my handles. So you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and chess.com and Lichess at A underscore X underscore R U I Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. Happy 2022. We love you dearly. And uh, please, as always, tell your enemies.